In terms of our passage today, uh, would you turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Acts chapter 8? We will be uh, beginning today in Acts chapter 8, and I'm sure enjoying uh, walking through this exciting book of the Bible. The book of Acts uh, recounts the, the truly explosive spread of the world of word of God all over the ancient world. It's a book with more action and drama than any movie you'll ever see. And Acts is not merely inspired by real events. No, it's, it's 28 chapters recount for us exactly what happened. It is a trustworthy, accurate, historical account of the first 30 years of the church's existence. So from roughly 30 AD to 60 AD, in these 28 chapters, we learn uh, so much of how God worked in the earliest days of the church to bring about the spread of the word. There's no question that both in the book of Acts and in secular history itself, these 30 years brought about the dramatic spread of the gospel. But how and why the good news of Jesus Christ spread so rapidly and powerfully might surprise you. And that's one of the things we want to focus in on this morning. And it's in that surprise, in our sense of, of shock even, if you will, that we still have room to grow in our understanding of how the kingdom of God works. It's, it's in the place in which we'll be surprised today that we need to lean in if we would understand and experience Jesus more. So this morning in Acts chapter 8, we'll uncover not only why and how the gospel word spread out of Jerusalem, but I think we'll also gain very significant insights into how God is working in our own lives, both individually and corporately as a church family. So we'll be reading this morning from Acts chapter 1, about halfway through, through uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Erica Wu is going to read for us. Erica? When there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the adults. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaged into the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Thanks, Erica. Uh, you'll notice in the text that uh, Erica just read in verse 1, the phrase, on that day. We've had quite a few days since last Sunday, so let me remind you of uh, what on that day is referring to. That's our clue that although we've started a new chapter in the book of Acts, the events of chapter 8 are in no way disconnected from the events of chapter 7. Remember in chapter 7 that Stephen was accused of speaking against Moses and the temple. And in response, Stephen gave the longest speech in the book of Acts. And it is one of the most theologically astute sermons in the whole Bible. But his speech got interrupted. It got interrupted when his hearers became so enraged that they stood up 
and aggressively grabbed him and drug him out of the city where they executed him. After Jesus himself, Stephen was the, the next person, and in that way he served as the first Christian martyr. He was the next person to die for his faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that, that phrase, on that day, is talking about Stephen's death. On that very day, the people who murdered Stephen didn't stop there. Once blood was on their hands, persecution let loose. While Stephen's pummeled body bled out, the first great persecution against the church was unleashed. Now, if we think back this morning over the progression of opposition to the church, the last several weeks we've seen this again and again, and it went from rather minor in the beginning to severe here today in chapter 8. What what began with a stern warning to Peter and John not to preach Christ became later the flogging, the, the beating of all the apostles, which led eventually to the martyrdom of Stephen, which resulted in the full-scale, unchained persecution of the precious church of Jesus Christ. Less than a year prior to this outbreak of persecution, Jesus himself had promised his followers that one day persecution would come. And while that didn't make it easy for the early church to face this opposition, it does show that a hardship for following the gospel and a, a working against the church of Jesus Christ is in no way unexpected. Nevertheless, Brothers and sisters, persecution does have a way of testing one's theology and their trust in God. Now, as you let your eyes glance back over those couple of verses, notice with me some characteristics of this first great bout of persecution. I'll point out three. Notice first that it was organized, second, that it was widespread, and third, that it was intense. First, this persecution was organized. Back towards the end of chapter 7, someone named Saul emerged for the very first time. Here in chapter 8, he, he finds himself as sort of the ringleader in the opposition, in the battle to end the church of Jesus Christ. If you're new to the Bible, you'll find in coming months as we work our way through the book of Acts that this person named Saul comes up again and again and again. There's a lot of material on him in this book. Here in Acts chapter 8, he emerges as the merciless zealot committed to the annihilation of the church. That was his goal, to wipe out this new movement called the church. But later in the book of Acts, he becomes a Christian himself. And God providentially changes his name from Saul to Paul. And not only does he become a Christian, but as the decades unfold, this man who here is a violent avenger, here where he resists what God's doing through the church, he'll later become someone who writes 13 of the books that make up the New Testament of the Bible. It's incredible. If you're not a Christian, 
And if you wonder if God could ever forgive and accept someone like you, well, let Saul serve as the undeniable truth that God is mighty to save, that God can forgive anybody, that God can change the trajectory of your life. Now, this persecution wasn't, wasn't chaotic. It wasn't haphazard. It was organized. Now, how do we know that? Well, Saul went house by house by house looking for Christians. There had to have been some, some organizational principle that the Jewish leaders were using in order to try to wipe out all of the Christians in the city of Jerusalem. When they found them, they took them away to prison. So first, this persecution was organized. Second, it was widespread. No corner in the city of Jerusalem was safe. Today, we might say you couldn't quarantine yourself from this persecution. It was everywhere. It was reaching every nook and cranny of the city of Jerusalem. And third, this persecution was intense. You'll see in verse 3 that it says that Saul was, quote, ravaging, unquote, the church. It's an unusual word. Like a lion would ravage its prey. Saul was trying to ravage the church. This means he was trying to destroy her. His goal was not merely to give the church a black eye, but to eradicate it from existence. The severity of this persecution caused Christians to scatter. These brand new Christians, as you look there in verse 3, scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Why? Well, they were running for their lives. They were going to die if they did not flee. Imagine, friend, that you are a brand new Christian. You have converted from Judaism to Christianity. And just weeks later, as a result of this brand new budding faith, you are forced to flee your home to avoid prison or death. Imagine what that would have been like. The, the scattering of the saints must have been tremendously difficult for the church in Jerusalem. I wonder as these waves of persecution moved out into new neighborhoods in Jerusalem and people fled for their lives. I wonder if the 12 apostles got together and said, maybe we should have Zoom church gatherings since everyone's all about and can't get together anymore. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, consider how difficult that would have been on this young church. Consider how hard the last weeks have been for us. Now, imagine the breakup of our fellowship. Imagine the, the spreading into homes, the inability to get together that we're experiencing. Imagine that was caused not by a virus we can't see, but by the willful, organized, merciless oppression of fellow countrymen we can see. That would have been all the more difficult. Honestly, the, the attempted demolition of the Jerusalem church 
doesn't feel like the good life that one might expect followers of Jesus Christ to be enjoying. Saul ravaging the church doesn't seem congruous with the promises that Jesus had made, the promises of of living water, of everlasting joy, of eternal life that Jesus had promised. The two, two things don't seem to fit. But according to that way of thinking, neither does living in 2020 with the coronavirus ravaging the world. There's a version of Christianity that says that if your faith is is strong, if you really believe, then persecution and pandemic won't come knocking on your door. There's a version of, quote, Christianity that says if you just believe, if your faith is strong, then you will live a, a life of ease, that God will protect you from anything difficult. But that prosperity gospel is a lie. That's not Christianity. Without question, the early church in Jerusalem had tremendous faith. And yet the sledgehammer of ferocious persecution shattered that church into thousands of pieces shooting in every geographical direction. Maybe that was the point all along. See, way back in Acts chapter 1, we heard Jesus say these inspiring words. You, that's a plural you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. From chapter 1 to chapter 7, we've seen the witnessing of the church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. We've seen that coming about. We've seen what Jesus promised playing itself out. But how did the word spread beyond the city? How did Christianity extend beyond the bounds of the walls of the city of Jerusalem? Well, the very next verse in Acts chapter 8 tells us, It won't be on the screens, but just glance down at verse 4 in your Bibles. Or maybe it will be on your screen. That's how magical all the folks here are. Look at that. So amazing. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Do you understand what's being said? These were not the apostles that fled. This was everybody else. Persecution spread the church outside of Jerusalem. What what Jesus announced, declared, commissioned his church in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 to do came about precisely through persecution. Christians shared Jesus as they fled and settled into new cities. I find that amazing. The the ransacking of homes and the dragging of Christians into prison led to the fleeing of the city, which spread the gospel of Jesus Christ like wildfire. 
That may seem counterintuitive to you, maybe even surprising, which brings us back to the nub of the whole thing I wanted to think with you about today. How does the kingdom of God work this side of heaven? How does the kingdom of God grow? Well, there's a bit of a rub here. You see, we're tempted to think that being a Christian means that we'll, in this life, have things easier than we would have without Jesus. We tend to think that if we are good Christians who trust God, who obey God, who try to follow the Bible, who don't do any of the big, bad, mean, scary sins, who live our lives upright to the best of our ability, that we will be healthy, we will be wealthy, and we will be at ease. Now, maybe we don't actually talk that way, but, but brothers and sisters, deep within, is there some part of you that actually believes that, even if you don't voice it? That if I do right things for God, then God will pay it forward by giving me an easier life. I think it's very easy to assume that. But the Bible paints a very different picture. Very different picture for now. I want to spend the rest of our time together this morning thinking about the place of pain in the life of an individual Christian and in our shared life together as a church. You see, there's a there's a vital, vital principle at work in this passage. And it is by no means an isolated, incidental, heady principle only in this passage that doesn't give us what we need for Monday morning. In fact, I would argue it's a principle we need every day. Our, our lack of understanding this is perhaps the most significant factor impeding our growth in maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there's, a, there's an underlying principle underneath what happened in Acts chapter 8 that is true about every single hardship any Christian would ever face. Jesus, Jesus summarized this kingdom principle in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. First, spoken in reference to his own death, Jesus in that verse lays out the principle so clearly. Jesus is saying, in the kingdom of God, the sacrifice and death of one leads to life in others. Dying in one produces life in another. Now that's a huge theological truth, brothers and sisters, and it's vital to embrace. So would you chew on it with me for a few minutes? Let's, let's take the analogy Jesus used as our starting point. Imagine Jesus holding in his hand a, a little kernel of wheat. And he says about that little kernel, 
that unless it's sown wisely in the ground, in the right conditions, that it won't amount to anything good, that it won't produce more fruit. But if that little kernel of wheat is placed in the ground, then it will produce a harvest that's far greater than that one kernel. So that the death of the one will lead to life for the many. That's how Jesus, brothers and sisters, understood his own life to work. By by refusing to live for himself, by devoting himself to the Father's will obediently, without wavering, even when it cost him tremendously, by living for God's glory and not his own. Jesus lived his own life not for himself. He lived it that this principle might display and be typified through him. Jesus lived a life of sacrifice that culminated in his death as the death par excellence. His death on the cross for sin, suffering as a substitute in our, in our place, has resulted in new spiritual life for billions, for you, for me, for us. In humility, though part of the Godhead himself, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And amazingly, that Humble obedience unto death. That's the kernel that led to the unimaginable, incalculable harvest of every Christian ever since. The death of one leads to life of others. Brothers and sisters, that principle, beloved, that principle is what drove Jesus. So, of course, we would find that principle displayed in his church, in his body. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 8. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 9 and 10 and 11 and 12 and 13. That's what spills forth onto every page of the New Testament. That's what's been flowing throughout church history ever since. The death of one leads to life of others. If you find it surprising that God would permit the death of Stephen and the brutal scattering of Christians from Jerusalem and the incalculable sufferings of the church ever since, if you find these things to be at odds with what you believe about what God would do for his people, then I want to encourage you to reconsider the very heart of your understanding about how the kingdom of God works. Because this is its basic principle. The essential building block of the kingdom of God in this life is that death leads to life. The way up is the way down. Now, frankly, 
you will never make much, much lasting progress in the gospel of Jesus Christ apart from coming to embrace this principle in your own life. Another way to put it, a way that perhaps we're more accustomed to, is the simple command of Jesus that we would deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Why is that the way of faith? Why is that how Christians live? Well, it's because our own death to ourselves, not once, but ongoingly, our daily death leads to life. You see, Jesus's self-understanding and his self-sacrificial obedience is not the outlier in the kingdom of God. No, Jesus typifies the life that every Christian is called to. The daily death of one leads to the life of others. The life of Jesus in us transforming our self-understanding fuels this kind of self-sacrificial daily obedience. Church, this is how the kingdom of God works. So the events of Acts chapter 8 ought not surprise us. When the church was scattered, this dispersion of the new people of God caused by persecution brought about the tremendous harvest of more and more Christians and more and more churches. We'll see in the coming weeks the spreading of God's word and the planting of these churches all over the ancient world. It's only as Christians died daily and shared their lives that more and more people came to know the Lord Jesus. The scattering of these Christians led to the harvest of God's word. This scattering is not like what you may have done when a loved one died and was cremated. It's not like going to the ocean and pouring ashes into the water that just disappear, and that's the end. No, this scattering is like a farmer sowing his seed in order that there would be more and more and more growth as a result. Maybe a more recent example would be helpful to us. And the easiest place to see this principle at work in the modern world is in the country of China. In 1949, as the communists emerged in power, 637 missionaries through the China Inland Mission were forced to leave. They were kicked out. What a disaster. 637 missionaries sent out of a country where they were so badly needed. What an absolute train wreck for the gospel, right? Wrong. Death leads to life. Within four years, a third of those missionaries had been redeployed in Southeast Asia and Japan, spreading the gospel into new countries. And the Chinese Christians who were left in China, even under persecution, multiplied tremendously. Today, a mere 71 years after those missionaries were expelled from China, the most conservative estimate of the number of Christians in that country is in the tens of millions. The death of those missionaries' dream 
to serve in China for the rest of their lives. The death of that dream led to the life of so many other Chinese. The untold number of Chinese Christians who risked and many no doubt lost their lives are what led to the spread of the Chinese church. The conversion of so many Chinese who know Christ today is precisely because of the persecution of that church. The principle is plain. Death, the death of the one, leads to life in many. Now friends, there's, there's many, many, many other places in the scriptures we could go to see this principle at play. It's not just here in Acts chapter 8. Let me show you one other place, a passage I've found so helpful personally. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 7, it says this. Now we have this treasure. This, the treasure is the gospel, a changed life by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This treasure in jars of clay, the jars of clay is a way of referring to our frail human bodies. So we have this gospel in our broken, busted bodies. That's what he's saying. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Do you hear Paul? Paul had found that the persecution he caused in Acts chapter 8 led to the life of many. Now, maybe you have some objections. I wish there were the opportunity to sit down with each one of you and visit about those. And maybe if you have questions or you just want to share what some of those objections are, maybe we could try to speak to them. You can hit that Q&A button down at the bottom if you're on Zoom. Submit those. We'd love to spend some time thinking together about those. But I think one of the objections that, that really stands out as perhaps something quite a few of us are thinking is it's, it's easy to see, while not emotionally satisfying, it's easy to see how this principle of death leading to life could fit in cases of persecution because the hardship is precisely directly connected to faith in Christ. But, but how would that same idea ever be the case for other kinds of hardship? I think that's a very understandable conclusion or question or objection. Candidly, uh, in response, briefly, I would say, it is perhaps easiest to see and appreciate the principle of death leading to life in cases of persecution. Wouldn't want to deny that at all. It's more easy to see the way in which 
the, the little piece of wheat, the kernel of wheat, leads to more people trusting in Christ because they, they don't give up on their faith even though it's costing them something. And that shows the durability and the, the tremendous value of faith in Jesus Christ leading to more followers. But according to the scriptures, this principle applies to all kinds of suffering. All kinds. If you watch for it, you'll find it painted beautifully all over the Bible. You can look at passages like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, or Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. In these passages and many more, you'll see that it is God's design that in the kingdom, in this life, until Jesus Christ returns, that it's as we are squeezed with all kinds of different difficulties, that it's precisely as we're squeezed and we die daily, that our own spiritual life grows and that other people get included in the kingdom. Now, one obvious application of Acts chapter 8, as we lead here to our conclusion, one obvious application is that we who live here in the United States, who don't face, at least thus far, physical forms of persecution for our faith, we ought to pray for the church of Jesus Christ in the places that do. There are many, many, many countries that if you follow Jesus there, you would live every day at risk of physical peril. And one thing we could do, brothers and sisters, is become accustomed with where those places are and that we would be a church and we would be individuals who pray for the church of Jesus Christ in those places. You may remember Jesus's um, parable of the sower where he talked about a farmer going out and sowing seed and that seed falling on different kinds of soil. And in only one of those kinds of soil is there really a flourishing of faith. In another type of soil, Jesus said that when persecution comes along, then there's a chance that that word won't bear fruit. So as we think about Christians in places where it's hard to follow Jesus, we would be wise to pray that they would stay faithful, stay true, that they would be sustained. That's perhaps the most applicable, dominant application we can make from Acts chapter 8 for us. Another consideration we should put in our own minds and hearts and do some soul searching on is related to our own willingness to suffer for the cause of Christ. Friend, are, are you willing because of Jesus to face hardship at work, to be ostracized from friends, to get the, the mocking of your uncle or aunt at the Thanksgiving table, to go without. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is worth it. And if you face, if you have faced hardship because of your faith in Jesus Christ, then that 
persecution. That's the word for it. Even if it's not physical, that difficulty because of following Jesus Christ is worth it. The death that you experienced in that moment is in some way part of God's great tapestry of weaving together a church, a church of every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is how God works. That, of course, is related to this broader principle that we've been considering this morning, that the death of one leads to life in another. And church, while the difficulty we're facing today is not principally the difficulty of persecution, we are nonetheless in a time of trial. In a time of trial, more significant and different and odd and in which we don't know the back end, we don't know when this is over, these COVID days are not easy. Will we be faithful as COVID-19 stretches on and on and on? Will, will we bemoan this hardship and miss the joy of being planted in the ground and God watering us each day? Will we bemoan that that's what's happening and thereby resist it? Or will we die daily in order that we would burst forth with the fruit of more and more godliness within us and more and more holiness among us as a church and even more people being added to us? May May our financial generosity, even when our jobs are insecure, show a yearning for Jesus to be known. May, may our hospitality in our homes reveal a willingness to risk, to risk our health for the souls of others. May our dogs lead to opportunities to share Jesus Christ. May our time not be consumed with the overconsumption of worldly trivial things, but rather may we die daily to our own comforts and desire to escape. May we instead give ourselves to sharing Jesus in this heightened time of fear and anxiety. May this time of scattering do what so many hardships have done before. May it spread the word of God and the glory of Jesus Christ evermore. Why? Because the death of one leads to life for many. Let's pray. Church, we, uh, Father, we thank you as a, as a church, as a as a body of followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you so clearly in your word teach us how things really work. I pray this morning in particular, Lord, for brothers and sisters whose faith is being rattled in this time of trial. I pray for those who didn't expect that even 
and perhaps precisely in following you, Father. That even in days in which we are being obedient and prayerful and thoughtful and resisting of sin and running daily to you away from temptation, that even in that context, we would be squeezed by hardship and trial and suffering and uncertainty and opposition. God, I pray for brothers and sisters whose faith has been shown in these days to not be as strong as they might have expected. That God, in your graciousness, in your patience, in your love, that you would lift them up. That our good shepherd would tend to our wounds. That we would be strengthened in our Lord Jesus Christ that the truth would lift us up. And that, God, we would come to see and believe and embrace that the death of one leads to life in many. That the hardships we face are not pointless. They are not haphazard. They are not beyond your power. That they don't mean you're not good that the daily crises and trials of life, that these are precisely the things you use to fertilize our own growth, our growth as a body, and the spreading of your name. God, we say we believe. Help our unbelief. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.